Making everyone happy on vacation isn't easy, but you know what is? Going to Aruba. All you have to do is walk out your door to find pristine pools, relaxing white sand beaches, and an island teeming with outdoor activities that'll put a smile on any face. You won't just feel great, you'll all feel great, filled with a calmer, more peaceful vibe that radiates Aruba's warmth. And the best part is, it never fades. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your family trip at aruba.com. When you bring your child to the pediatrician's office, we weigh them and measure them. These are pretty easy things to evaluate to make sure they're growing at the right pace. But we also track their cognitive development. I may look like I'm playing with your kid when I lay them down on the exam table and coo at them, or I watch them across the room to see if they're studying me or if they're trying to get me to smile at them. I even do this with older kids and teenagers. I ask them questions like, what do you like to do? And do you have good friends? These are signs of social development and cognitive development, and obviously they're really important. And while I enjoy talking to kids once they can talk, it's kind of harder to assess their development because they have social and cultural reasons why they may not want to engage with me. They might be shy, embarrassed, or scared. But babies, for the most part, we can do little experiments on them to see how they react. They are a little more straightforward. And what's really cool is that researchers study babies to find out how humans develop their cognition, or in other words, how humans learn develop memory, and think. We understand our own mind better when we see how it came to be, and that's the job of infant cognition researchers. I have a very messy lab. (laughs) (laughs) It has spills and sand and weird, unusual objects all over it. That's Dr. Sue Hespos. She's a professor of infant studies and leader of Baby Lab at Western Sydney University. She and her colleagues researched the earliest evidence of cognitive capacities in humans and what changes during development. But mostly she just plays with babies to see how they think and learn. She's gonna share a few of the insights she has discovered. And in part two, she'll share how those insights can tell you how to interact with babies to support their cognitive development. I'm Dr. Wendy Hunter, and I'm the pediatrician next door. I'm that doctor friend you call for practical advice about your kid's health. I mix the science of medicine with the reality of parenting. Your baby is born with the ability to breathe, sleep, feed, pee, and poo, all the functions they need to survive. They are also born with blurry vision, basically no coordination of their limbs, and limited ability to communicate, at least through words. But they do communicate. And that's what infant cognition researchers use to figure out how babies learn and what they're thinking about. I asked Dr. Hespos how she peers into the minds of babies. The way that you study infant cognition, I mean, it would be great if babies could write us an essay about their vast experience in the first months of life, and that's just not going to happen. So we have to capitalize on what babies are good at. Infants have good control over their eyes from the first days of life, and they tend to look at what they find interesting. And when they get bored, they're a little rude. They just look away and find something else interesting. So that is a choice 
that the baby is making. And so what we do is they sit on their parent's lap in front of a puppet stage. There's a video camera under the stage videotaping the baby's face. And we time how long they look at the events that we show them. They're sophisticated little beings, even though they seem kind of hapless and incontinent and they need all of our, you know, us to care for them, they are working hard. They're working hard on developing posture, on developing eye contact and social relationships. It's primitive. It's very primitive because it's extremely complex in the long run, but they get started from the get-go. And when she refers to the get-go, that actually means from within the womb, before they're even born. I've talked before about how babies start to develop the ability to distinguish different tastes in utero based on what their mothers ate. Babies also learn a lot about sound before they're born. We know this from ultrasound studies. When unborn babies hear their mother's voice, their heart rate changes, almost as if they're processing the sound they hear. Multiple studies have documented this, with a live mother's voice and even with their recorded voice. And even soon after they're born, they show a preference for their mother's voice. In one set of experiments with 12-hour-old babies, they were given a pacifier to suck on. And when they sucked, they heard a recording of their mother's voice. If they stopped sucking for two seconds or longer, the recording stopped. It took babies a few tries and minutes to figure this out, but they voted by sucking to hear their mother's voice. We as parents know this happens because we talk to pregnant bellies and we can't help but sing and talk to newborns. It's like we have this urge to sing and talk. And for babies, their learning starts with recognizing rhythms of our voices. Studies have shown that babies can pick up the rhythms of language even in the last trimester. So just really broad rhythmic differences. Like in English, we tend to emphasize the first part of a word. So we say baby, whereas in French, they say baby. So the accent is on the end of the word. And a, a baby that is around an English-speaking mother will have a preference for the rhythmic patterns of their native, you know, the mom's language. They would prefer, and they will turn their head to listen to English sounds compared to, say, French sounds or some other language that has a different rhythmic quality to it. And so they're learning in the womb, and it's very specific learning. So there were even studies that showed that a mom that read Green Eggs and Ham versus The Cat in the Hat, so two Dr. Seuss books. And they read it like every day <laughs> for the last month, I think, of pregnancy. And the kids could show a preferential difference for the one that they had heard before. The reason we feel this urge to talk to our kids is that they react. They don't react by talking back because they just don't have the motor control yet, and there's a lot of other limitations, but they engage. And they train us up. And there's some really fascinating stuff done by linguists that show that parents speak differently to a two-month-old than how they speak to a five-month-old than how they speak to a seven-month-old. And it doesn't even have to be their own child. It's that we read the signals from the kid. If the kid is engaging with us, we do more of that. We, you know, we're reacting positively to our kids' signals. If the kid is not interested, they just look away. And so again, at a time when they're focusing in on the vowel sounds, parents hyperarticulate those vowels. And at a, a different time when they're more interested in the rhythm, like, or a song, they'll react and want more of that. So it's a two-way street. 
And I do think that there is some hardwiring in there on the baby side as well as on the parent side to engage in these types of interactions. And our studies show that they make a difference. Kids have measurable learning effects when parents are engaging with them and the kids are hearing what they want to hear. We all know that kids learn language because we watch it happen. We see them learn how to walk. We see them learn how to do lots of things. But there are a lot of things we take for granted, like not understanding or understanding the concept of a solid or what an object is going to do. And I love how you call this like physics for infants. (laughs) What is physics for infants? Physics for infants is this idea that we all expect that if I were to dangle my keys in front of me and let go of them, even before I let go of them, you expect they're going to fall. I expect they're going to fall. My dog expects they're going to fall. So this isn't even human specific, right? Like I remember my dog would really get frustrated when helium balloons were in the house because, right, that's an object and you let go of it and it goes up. Like, of course, that's frightening and crazy and ridiculous, but you can adapt to it. A variety of studies going back 20 years have shown that if you have a baby sitting on a parent's lap in front of a puppet stage and you magically make an object float in midair instead of, you know, you push it off a support and it falls. Kids get used to that after a couple of trials. But if you magically make it float in midair, so in addition to being a scientist, I have to be a magician, kids look significantly longer at that event, something floating in midair than falling like it should. At three months of age, kids get this. Now, at three months, a three-month-old cannot manipulate objects. Their motor skills aren't good enough yet, so they must be picking this up by looking at things in their world, and there's plenty of examples that we see. Just, you know, look around your office right now, you'll see plenty of examples of support. And so we get a lot of redundant information and examples about this in our everyday life. And babies are picking up on that in the first months with blurry vision. They can't even support their neck very well. So it's incredible that they have these things. And that could lead into a discussion about whether or not is it innate? I don't know. We're still doing some studies on figuring this stuff out. So the area of what kids understand about how objects behave and interact, how they collide, how they get supported, how they fall down, things like that, has been well studied over the last 20 years. And what we've discovered is that babies have expectations about how objects work. And that's the baby physics. You know, it's unsupported objects fall down. It's a thing. So we started asking questions. Well, what about liquids? We have to drink liquid every day or it will be our last. And babies are drinking milk for the first six months of life, ideally, and they're taking a bath and they play in water. And so do they have any expectations about this? The answer is yes. They do seem to have expectations that liquids should pour. And if it suddenly turns into a chunk like of ice, kids find that surprising and look significantly longer at those types of events. Babies growing up in Chicago often don't see sand for the first several months if they're born in the winter, yet they still have expectations that sand should pour too, even if they've never experienced sand. So that's kind of interesting because it's something about the way that substances like liquids and sand move that's probably specifying how it should pour and that your hand can pass through it, whereas my hand won't pass through the table. learn by watching the world around them, but also by touching objects. They can't really do that until they're a few months old, of course. 
but they are able to learn about objects they touch but can't see. Here's something fun you can do with a baby. Put a shape in your baby's hands, something like a plastic cylinder or a triangular block, but make sure they can't see it. If they're laying on their back, hold a light towel or blanket like a drape between their face and their arms. If they drop the object, put it back in their hands. Let them play with it and feel it for a long time, maybe a few minutes. Then put the object in front of the baby at the same time that you put another very differently shaped object in front of her, something like a spiky ball or a cube. When researchers do this, do you know what they find? The baby looks longer at the object they haven't touched. Similar experiments show that newborns can anticipate or they already know what different textures are going to look like. If they hold and explore an unseen object with a bumpy texture, they later act as if they are familiar with or know the visual appearance of that texture. Somehow, without practice, the newborn brain knows how to translate how an object feels into how it looks. In other experiments, researchers like Dr. Hespos have discovered that although babies can't count, they do seem to understand quantity. And there is probably an evolutionary reason why. There are some early number concepts that are probably innate and shared with my dog and many other species. More versus less, you know, things like that, where to find food most of the time, Mm -hmm. foraging behaviors and things like that. So there's examples of number knowledge in other species, but number concepts, our ability of the concept of seven is really special. And it takes any other species a very long time to acquire that kind of knowledge. And they never get as far as fast as humans do. An amazing example is this um, duck pond example where like if you and I were at other opposite ends of a duck pond, and let's just say there's a hundred ducks on the pond and you were feeding them twice as fast as I would, about 66 ducks would go to you and 33 of them would come to me. And that's just what they do. And this is probably evolutionarily a foraging behavior that was advantageous. And I don't think the ducks are sitting there like, yo, you go over there and I'm going to come over here. But they do it. However, if you look closely at some of these studies that have done this, there's bully ducks And so they're the ones that like eat too much. And so they're like, oh, George is over there. We better go to the slower one because we're not going to get anything. He's such a hog, you know? So again, these, these are cognitive abilities, but they happen in a social context for us as humans, but also other species like ducks on a pond. How do you study this in babies, the concept of numbers? Any way you can. Some of the ways that you do it is there's some very impressive work done with EEG, which is, again, measuring these electrical impulses over the head. And what you do is you you can show kids a repetitive stimulus, eight sounds, eight sounds, eight sounds, 16 sounds. If the kid detects that there has been a number change, they will have a change in their electrical activity, which is akin to our experience of surprise, like, oh, that's different. And so it sticks out to them. So it's been supported by the electrophysiological response looking time responses too. So a study that I did years ago was you show them one Elmo and you cover it up and then you bring in another Elmo and drop it behind the same screen. And then you lower the screen and lo and behold, half the time there's two Elmos behind the screen. So one plus one equals two. However, on half the trials, you surreptitiously take one of them away. So you've done one behind the screen, a second behind the screen, but when you lower the screen, 
Magically, there's only one object there. And four-month-old infants look significantly longer at that outcome compared to one where there's two there. Now, do I think that this is arithmetic? Not really. I think that it's like you put a thing there, you put another thing there, and there's thing and thing. I don't think they have a concept, the same concept that you and I have of two, but they know enough to look longer. So kids are picking up this stuff. These are the initial kernels. I'm not saying kids have innate knowledge that's full-blown at birth. They learn a ton, but they have these just a little starters that are very primitive concepts that get elaborated and refined over experience in the world. There's one other kernel of abilities that humans need to learn and develop cognition, and that is attention. Babies need to be able to physically like move their eyeballs toward and brainily attend to or give their attention to the same scenario or object that their parent is teaching them about. We call that joint attention. And researchers understand the importance and implications of this. They may not be focusing on the objects in front of them. They may be focusing much further in the distance or on dust particles in between me and the objects, right? So if you can imagine a situation where a parent is labeling an object, which is, and you know, when I'm attending to the object and the baby's attending the object and I offer a label for it, that's an ideal joint attention situation where they're most likely to pick up words. The parent thinks that they're looking at the object, but they're focusing on something at a very different distance and the parent's labeling it. That's not going to be a successful word learning situation. These are really fascinating studies that are going on. So I'm going back to this idea of you have to approach, the science is getting more integrated. And that's a great thing because you have to look at what is the kid actually focusing on? What is the social context that is supporting or not supporting this situation? And what is the cultural context that's supporting or not supporting this situation? That is mind-blowing to me. (laughs) But it also has implications for therapies because if you know a child is not looking at an object, then you have to make sure in your therapy, okay, we're attending to the same object Mm -hmm. when I tell you what it is. Exactly. Oh, Yeah, yeah. So again, it's one of these things too where there's always these questions about whether or not kids can learn while watching television. Well, if the kid is actively engaged talking at the television, like Blue's Clues and uh, many of these other kids' shows now that are much more interactive, or if they're watching it with a caretaker who's facilitating the interaction with, did you hear what they said? Can you make the B sound? Can you point to the one that's a circle? Those type of interaction styles are very effective. However, just sitting in front of the television, the kid might be looking at the left corner of the TV, not absorbing the you know, the displays that are going on. And so it's this question of, are they actually engaging? And if they're actually engaging, you are going to be more likely to have longer lasting learning. This caught my attention because it occurred to me that if a child has a speech delay, we don't really know if they need to work on the mechanics of being able to move their mouth, if they actually can't hear the words, or if they're simply not attending to the things their parents are saying the words for. This is all quite complicated, but here's what I want to leave you with. You are your child's best toy. If you make your child smile and laugh, you're doing the right thing. But remember, they're easily overwhelmed. Give them one object at a time to explore. Young babies will need calm activities between more active activities, and sometimes they need very short playtimes. Let them try things before you help out, 
and let them witness the results of their activities. If they drop something, help them see where it went, but also step in before they give up on a new skill. It's a fine balance, but you know what you're doing. Have confidence. If you think your baby likes or doesn't like something, you're probably right. You're the expert on your baby. Now, if you're curious to learn more about how to optimize interactions with a baby, that's on next week's episode when Dr. Hespo shares that, as well as how her research and researchers like her can help develop artificial intelligence. It turns out that babies are better at learning than machines are. I mean, we have a millennia of evolution that has fine-tuned the process of learning. This will cause some people to laugh, but also I think it's somewhat true. AI has learned and could learn more if they looked at babies, right? Babies are a fabulous example of an amazing learning machine. That's next week on The Pediatrician Next Door. For more from The Pediatrician Next Door, find me on the web at pediatriciannextdoorpodcast.com. If you've got a question about the weird things kids do, send an email to hello at pediatriciannextdoorpodcast.com for a chance to hear your voice on the show. I'm Dr. Wendy Hunter, and I'm the pediatrician next door. This show is produced by Red Rock Music. Make sure to subscribe and leave a review wherever it is you're listening. I'll be back next time with more.